And beloved, there are hundreds of thousands of people in our region who do not put their, build their foundation of their life in the love of Christ and are not experiencing a relationship with the Lord through Christ and what he has done for them. And that's where we come in. We have been placed here by the Lord to be the salt and light of this region and to be used of God to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to our community. And um, we are there at this, we are here at a seasonal time again of the year where we have opportunity to go and invite people, friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ to come and hear of the good news of him. Tickets are, all, are, are right now available for December 9 through 11. Please pick them up as soon as you can, even today, uh, for the four performances. To, uh, I trust that even as our service proceeds, you will uh, hear from the Lord as to who you should be inviting, who you should be planning to invite, and uh, make sure that takes place. Jingle in the City is coming. December 9 through 11. So the battle um, to stop sinning doesn't end at our salvation. Although we have studied and realized that we are being made alive in Christ and we are raised with Christ, in fact, that battle just begins. Serious Christians take up arms against the ongoing battle of Obedience versus disobedience, the seduction of sin, the lack of spiritual fullness day to day. And choosing righteousness over sin is a conscious and intentional priority. It doesn't happen passively in the life of the serious Christian. Now we know and we have been taught that the power of sin the power that sin had over us, has been defeated at the cross by Jesus Christ for us. And through the gift of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the possibility of sin continues. The power has been uh, taken away. The power of sin. The enslavement to sin. But the possibility of sin remains. And this is the battle of our lives that we are talking about. Uh, there are troubling trends in the postmodern Christianity that I have been noting over the years, and I'm sure you have as well. People are ignoring Christians I'm talking about now. The, the church, the people who claim to know Christ, have been ignoring boundaries in sexual behavior. Increasingly, Christians are embracing vulgar and slanderous and hurtful speech and writing and drawing divisive attention to racial differences and grievances. These three things are addressed in the text this morning in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, I'd invite you to, to turn there. In fact, it seems in our day that the more freedom you think you have immorally and uh, the more vulgar you can be and the more racist you are, it seems to be the cooler the Christian that you are, or the more up-to-date Christian you are. That is 
not New Testament Christianity. And we, we know that as you study human nature, that it is, uh, we, we swing from pole to pole. Christians swing over to incredible or increasing legalism, and then there's always a course correction that swings the pendulum too far to license. And just an observation that I'm making is we seem to be somewhere in the swing to license that is not, is not enabling us to be the witness and testimony to the world that we need to be. And so there's a call in the text today to take arms in some serious imperatives, with some serious imperatives to, to actively engage in a different style of life. It's to that I want to draw your attention. In verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, I want to look at the text with you this morning. It begins with a therefore, or it should begin with a therefore. The therefore is there. And it, of course, it's looking back to what we learned last week, what we studied in the text last week, that we have been raised with Christ to set our priorities on things above. We have been granted this amazing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, where Christ is, we, we, are, we are focusing on where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're to have our mindset on the things of Christ in this text. We are hidden with Christ, and we will also appear with him. The glorious truths that are given to us, and, and so Paul then writes, therefore, in light of who you are, this is who you should be. This is who you must be. The indicative of indicatives tell us who we are, and the imperative tells us who we must be, in light of who we are. That's what we're looking at here in the text. So it begins this way. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of God. Our Father, this morning, would you please open up our hearts to the application of God's word in us each individually, Lord? Would you speak to us? Would you speak to this group, or would you speak to us personally as well? Because each life is different. Each one struggles differently. Each one lives in a different setting with different temptations. But we have the same truth, oh God. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same salvation, the same church. And I pray, oh God, that we would abide by your truth, that we would take seriously the matter of sin in our lives, that we might please you in everything that we do in light of all that you've done for us, I pray, oh God, for Jesus' sake, amen. 
So it begins with a very, very strong imperative. Put to death. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So the contrast, of course, is from before. We're to set our, our hearts, our minds on things above and to put to death the things of this world, the, the, the earthly nature, our earthly nature, the things of ourself, the things of our old self, the way we used to live, the way we used to think. There's a, there's a, a, a contrast. This is who you are and this is who you must be. And, and it's not passive. It, it must be active. You must engage in this actively. It is imperative for us that we have new morals because our old immoral idolatry was killing us and would get us killed now. It kills you and it will kill you. It was killing you, it will kill you. Put to death, this is a serious order from the Lord. Because of what happened to you in Christ, do this with a passion. You don't renew or reform your old nature. You put it to death. You must treat earthly passions that are causing you or driving you towards sin as if they are a deadly toxin to your life because they really are. That's the urgency that is given us here. We're to turn everything upside down if necessary to deal with sin in our lives. That's why Jesus, in, in, as recorded in Mark chapter 9, 43 to 48, talks about a very serious approach to sin. He says there in the text that if your hand is causing you to sin, you should take a dramatic approach to that and cut your hand off. It would be better to go into heaven without a hand than to end up in hell with your hand that has caused you to sin. This is a dramatic expectation of the Lord. Is he talking in hyperbole? Sure. But not really. He is really, I believe, telling us to do whatever it takes. Turn everything in your life upside down. This is so critical in your life, so important to your new self-life that you do whatever it takes to put it to death, starve it to death, cut it out of your life so you no longer have a desire, so you no longer are drawn to it, so it simply withers away and out of your life. Do the mechanical thing you must do to the material thing that is causing you to sin, that your heart might not be destroyed. That's what's being told here. Say no to turning natural desires into impure weapons of idolatry. Literally, it's saying here, the, the members of your body are to be used in the service of the Lord, not for sin. So you exchange, you exchange. It's, it's, I will not use the members of my body to sin. Rather, the members of my body have now been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ with an incredible cost, and they are for the service of the Lord. As I engage, as I change to the service of the Lord from the, the sin of my life, I, it will naturally happen that you will, you will put to death the things that are, that are leading you astray. Let's be clear, Christ, according to verse 11 of chapter 2, Christ has taken our obsession to sin and circumcised it at the cross. He has taken the tumor of our obsession to sin 
and killed it at the cross. But free radicals exist. The possibility yet to sin in our lives continues to exist. And we must put that to death in however a dramatic way we have to in order to cause it to happen. I urge you, I call on you, the scriptures call on you, old cravings and obsessions must be gone in favor of new desires cultivated. That's the act of engagement that must take place here. This, Paul writes, is how you used to be before Christ. Your life needs to be different. Your life can be different. Christ has died for you that you might be different and live a life that actually honors him. Now, he lists some things here that presently Christians are often engaging in re-identifying or redefining so that sin that used to be called sin is now kind of common behavior by believers. I won't bore you with statistics because it actually wouldn't bore you, it would cause you to be aghast, but the Christian context is not very encouraging in terms of our behavior. So let me go down the list and let's clarify what these things really mean. Because what they meant to the people Paul was writing to, they mean to us. We don't get to change the meanings of words. We don't get to contemporize what was called sin to this group of people is the same sin to us. So sexual immorality, for instance, is any sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage. The sexual immorality classified as sin here against God is any sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage. And then he adds to this the word impurity, which means any unwholesome engagement whatsoever, whether active or passive. That you're just watching or looking at, that's, that's impurity. Anything that's unwholesome or lust that's an insatiable appetite for fleshly gratification. Remember what the call was before? We're to set our hearts on things above. We're to have a mindset of Christ. Not an insatiable appetite for fleshly gratification. Evil desires, thinking about sinful behavior. You remember how Jesus classified sin? If a man looks at a woman in the wrong way, he has committed adultery with that woman already. This is what thinking about sinful behavior is. And then greed, which really is a catch-all word, frankly, for all of the other things that are they're so regularly committed. Sex, money, and power are so regularly connected to each other. Greed is an insatiable selfishness. Everyone, everything exists for personal amusement and use, which he calls idolatry. And what's the, what's the caution of this? What's the seriousness of this? 
In verse 6, it says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Because of human behavior that is so far from the design of God for us, the wrath of God is coming upon this world. The judgment of God is coming upon this world. If you read the back of your Bible, you will, you will see there the, the picture of how God views sinfulness, how heinous it is to him, how, how much he deals with it. In fact, we see around us the wrath of God that is already coming upon this world. Romans 1, Paul talks about it in his day. The wrath of God is already being revealed against sinfulness. We see it as our world continues to just be cycling into depravity as God withdraws his grace and allows people to face the, the full-blown force of what sin does to a person. And the reason that God, of course, judges sin as all sin is a mutiny against God at heart. It's intentional, rebellious disobedience toward God. This kind of sinful behavior has an appointment with the judgment of God. It has no place in the Christian context. It has no place in the heart of a person who's been raised to life by, in Christ, who's been brought to life who has died to their old life. And the rightful response of a holy God, the holy God of creation against the unholy righteousness of his creatures is his wrath. It's an act of his love because God must act against human choices determined to ruin the perfect design of his creation. Sin destroys the sinner, but it also destroys people around the sinner. From God's perspective, and I think we can understand this as most of us who are parents or we have loved, loved ones or whatever, whatever stage of life you're at. As a loving father, there's no way that you're going to stand by and watch your children being damaged by someone. So it stands to reason that our loving heavenly father cannot stand by and watch people destroy their lives and destroy the lives of people around them. He must judge that. He, in fact, there's a, there's a huge struggle in evangelicalism to embrace the wrath of God, to embrace the judgment of God. All we want to hear about is the love of God. And the love of God is great and grand and, and amazing and and immeasurable. But you can't have a loving God who ignores people's people being damaged. The wrath of God is intricately woven into the love of God. A loving God judges things that hurt people. It's printed in the pages of your text. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
So the first imperative is to put to death, kill sin before it kills you, because it will. You either know people or I certainly can testify to the fact over these many years of ministry that I have sadly watched how sin kills people and people around them. But now, we are a new image people. New image in how we speak. Because God is renewing our new self. Not only in the image of God, but to be also in his likeness. You see here, but now, verse 8, this is a second imperative. You must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self, you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self which is being renewed. So you've put off yourself. You've made, made uh, you're killing sin. You've made it die, made it to die. And now you've put on a new life. You've taken that old garment that was filthy dirty and you've taken that off and it's, it's only good for the incinerator. You can't spot clean it. It's to be gone. We put on a new, new nature. But this new nature that Christ has given to us requires a now a renovating or a renewing. It's new, but it requires upgrades by the renewing of our mind through the word of God, through us experiencing the truth of God's word. See what it says here? By the, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of the creator of Christ. So we take off, we don't try to fix dry rot. You put new wood on. These are antisocial sins. You don't gradually reform, renew your old image. You completely dump it. It can't be reformed. You don't keep it around at all and think that, well, sometimes I can just let it rip. It's okay. No, you're going to see, no, it's not okay. That's why it's, that's why it's got to be gone because you can't just let it rip once in a while. You permanently sideline it from your life. These are things that destroy community. Literally, disarm the weapon of your mouth and a violent inner self. Because if you are real, raised with Christ... At this point, you had a new garment put on you, which is then and now continually being renewed, not by you, but by the Holy Spirit. This is a present passive participle, so it means it's an ongoing thing that the Holy Spirit, someone else is doing, the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. As you do your work of rejecting the things that displease God. The Holy Spirit is doing his work in your life to transform you more and more into the likeness of Christ, into his image. 
That's what's happening in our lives. We're being upgraded by the Holy Spirit through the word of God and his filling as we obey the word of God. We're rejecting disobedience. We're saying yes to obedience. And in the process, our new self is being upgraded constantly into the image of Christ Jesus. So what are these speech things that need to be put off, kicked out and gone in our lives? Well, first of all, it says anger. And by the way, there's righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. There's anger against the things that displease God. But there's unrighteous anger. And unrighteous anger is a chronic feelings of being at odds with everything and everyone. You're just walking around angry all the time. You know people like that? Hopefully not Christians. Christians should not be walking around angry all the time. There's a lot of things out there making us angry. This is a time, this is a moment in many of our lives where there's just so many things to make us angry that if we're not careful, we just walk around angry all the time. We're called not to be like that. And then rage is anger in outbursts. If you carry around anger all the time, if you keep carrying anger, it will come out. It will come out in an outburst of rage. If you're wondering where that came from, it came from the fact that you are harboring anger in your life. You are harboring anger in your heart. So we, we get rid of that. We get rid of the anger that we're harboring. We will not have angry outbursts. Or malice, pursuing the ill will of people. Or slander, belittling or defaming or discrediting people. Abusive language, abusive speech, intending to harm or abuse or hurt people. Lying to people, lying to one another, which seeks to take it and, and get advantage over one another, which destroys unity. See, all of these things are destroyers of community and are direct attacks on the image of God in other people's lives. You realize that each of us, whether we know Christ or don't know Christ, bear the image of God. So when we lash out, not just at Christians, but at anyone, we are lashing out at the image bearer of God. It matters to God. People matter to God. Whether they've come to him yet or not, they matter to God. God is a people God. And, and when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image and in his likeness. When they sinned, they did not lose the image of God, although we call it in theological wor wor the theological world, the image of God was marred. It is hidden. It, it is to a degree hidden, and we don't see it the way we ought to. But when they sinned, the image was marred, but the likeness was completely gone. The likeness of God. Which is what redemption is all about, which is what salvation is all about, which is what coming into covenant relationship with God is all right. It's it, all about. It's the return of the likeness of God. And the image of God is restored in us. 
So the image was marred, the likeness went away completely. What, what's the image of God? The image of God is, is uh, the distinction between mankind and the animal creation. Mankind is made in the image of God, which means we, we share as vice regents in the rule over his creation. We are rational creatures. We think, we dream, we think ahead, we are rational, we, are, um, we, we think with reason. We are representative of God. That's, that's the image bearer reality of us. But the, but the likeness of God is necessary. It's needed to function properly in order for his image to be fully functional. That's why it's marred in the absence of Christ. So when the new came, we are restored to his image and the likeness of God both. This is critical as we understand the nature of our relationship now with Christ. And so it is, it is necessary for us in the, these, uh, the list of vices, it's necessary for us to shed these in order that we more and more might reflect the likeness of Christ, which is what was granted to us in salvation. We were already image bearers trying to get across. But the likeness of Christ is now something that is given to us by salvation. And so we're called to be more and more like Christ. People see us, how we act, how we behave, how we handle morals, how we handle our speech, how we handle our treatment with each other, should increasingly look more like Jesus Because we've been raised with him. We're focusing our priorities on things above. We're taking off things, putting away things, stripping ourselves literally of the things of this earth and the, tree, and the way we acted in our bodies that don't reflect Christ. And that makes a dramatic change in how we treat everybody. And that's where he goes in the final imperative here. It's not, you don't see an imperative, but there's an understood imperative. Where he says, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. When you come to Christ, when you are raised with Christ, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Everything changes about how you view each other, how you view this world, this world of people. Everything changes. You have now become a part of a new humanity, not based on difference of kind, but whose unique identity is Christ in all. The image, in, the image likeness newness that now you have enables you to see the world of people differently, to recognize the true family of God, to recognize your real brothers and sisters and who they are. And so the, the understood imperative here is make no distinction. So great is what we have in common in Christ. Christ. 
those raised with Christ are placed in this new humanity, which is not based on race, it's not based on gender, it's not based on social standing, it's not based on nationality, it's not based on language, it's not based on culture. It's based on Christ. And it's powerful what is delivered to us here. Very powerful. Christianity that is real seeks to erase harmful divisions based on segregation of nationalities and differences of persons. Because for people who are believers, now listen to me, for people who are believers in this world, as, in Christ as Lord and Savior, we have a new uniting and unifying factor that supersedes everything else. It changes everything else. It changes how we see each other to a certain nation of people in this world. Christ is all. It has nothing to do with nationality or language or gender. It's there are a certain group of people in this world who believe that Christ is everything. These are your brothers and sisters who believe that that Christ is all. He is everything that everybody needs regardless of physical or social or national differences. It matters not what we look like on the outside. It matters what we believe about what is important. And, and we believe that Christ is all, that we have the same everything. Everything we need is Christ. That's what brings us into a common relationship with one another. That's what unites us. That's what's the unifying factor. But not only that, Christ is all. Not only is that a, a certain group of people are, are, are believe that way, but, but we also believe that Christ is in all who believe that. When you believe that Christ is everything, when you've come to know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and he is your everything... Christ moves into your life. Christ is in all people who believe like that. Regardless of where you're from or what your language is or what nationality you are, what race you are, he, those who have a relationship with Christ means Christ is in all. His divine life is in redeemed people without distinction. The same living spirit, the spirit of Christ connects us in a spiritual, cosmic bond that is greater than any other human relationships. This, this is a game changer for the church. The, the church. the church is granted not only the power, but the motivation to be truly in unity with humankind who know Christ, regardless of what we look like on the outside. Now, I want to I want to really um, drill down on a point here because there's a lot of people who use these kinds of texts really incorrectly. They use them for a license to sin. By saying now there's, there's nothing, none of this even means anything, and gender means nothing. That's not, that's not what the text means. 
Greeks and Jews didn't change from being Greeks and Jews. And men and women don't change from being men and women because they come to know Christ. A man is still a man, and a woman is still a woman. And a Greek is still a Greek, and a Jew is still a Jew. What changed is we're a family. What changed is we love each other. What changed is we are united together. What changed is the church is one nation. A nation of people who Christ is everything and Christ is indwelling. That's who we are. So while our anatomical differences remain, Christians are more the same than different. And Christ is the unifying factor of all people who come to him for salvation. That needs to change everything in how we relate to one another. So racial tension within Christianity is sin. And if it exists in your life, it needs to be rooted out like sexual immorality or like anything else we've talked about, anger, rage. It has to go. It has to go. It's old nature stuff. It's what the world lives like. It's not what the church is like. False image and identity. It denies our new humanity race. Our same family status. And our identity as the nation of Christ. That's who our nation is. That's what our nationality is. That's what our race is. It's Christ. For me to live, regardless of what language I speak, what color I am, whatever, gen what gender I am, there's only two, by the way. For me to live is Christ. It's Christ. In the nation of Christ, in the people of God, in his... his exotic design that he chose. I'm kind of looking forward to heaven in the sense that he's gonna pull all the nations together and all this and all the languages together and all that. This is a work of God that we have to wait and see how this is gonna work. It will work marvelously. The church is multicultural in look multi-ethnic in look, but we're unicultural and uni-ethnic in reality because we are the culture of Christ. We are Christians. Do you see how important this is as a witness to the world of the authenticity of Jesus Christ and his salvation? That we live different morals that we exhibit a different speech pattern, that we embrace our brothers and sisters, whoever they are, from wherever they are. This is something the world doesn't do or can't do. If we ever want the jingle in the city to make an impact in our region, that's our Christmas program. 
it will make an impact if this is how we are living. If they come here and see us living like this together, it will make a huge impact. And so, as we transition into our communion service, which is prefiguring the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will all be together, it's, it's important for us, I think, as a transition to remind ourselves again of who will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb in concert with what we've been teaching here this morning. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, listen, listen carefully at, at who will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And the church should reflect that. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's important to know who won't be there. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. He continues at the back of the book in Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who will be there again? Verse 24, 21. The nations will walk by his light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Praise God for his word, his truth to us this morning. This is the correct setup for the Lord's table. If you know him as your Lord and Savior, then you are invited by the host of this supper, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to participate in the elements. Because you are in line to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you do not know him, and you reject him, you rebel against him, then you need to pass the elements by or more importantly than any other decision you will ever make in your entire life is today in the hearing of the word of God and the warning that those who reject the living Christ will be cast into hell forever. On the basis of that warning and this truth, 
Today, you should give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you, that you might be saved forever from the wrath of God. Father, I thank you for your truth to us today. I pray that we will take it to heart. It is serious, serious stuff for people who are serious about their hearts, their souls, and eternity. And that's us, Lord. We love you. We thank you for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And now we want to commemorate the ultimate remembrance, the remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us that we might have salvation from the wrath of God against all sinfulness. I pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Our Lord is very serious about how we live out our Christian life. We are not invited to be reckless and reckless toward one another and damaging and hurtful and harmful. We are not. It attracts the judgment of God. It has to because he loves us so much. He will not let us continue to go on damaging either our own lives or the lives of the people around us. And when we take communion, it is a reminder of how serious our life and relationship is with Christ and with one another. And so I urge you, I urge you to pay attention to the fact that we are called to new morals. We are called to live a different way. We are called to be people who demonstrate a new image, the likeness of Christ. And we are a nation, a new humanity, one people in Christ. Christ is everything to us, and Christ is in all of us, regardless of nationality, language, um, gender, etc., social standing. If you know Christ as your Savior, He is in you. And we are connected by the most significant connection possible in this universe to the living God and to one another through the Holy Spirit. Our Father, thank you so much for the instruction of your word today, for the ceremony that we participated in together, which enables us to use all of our senses for the message of truth to be driven into our hearts and minds. I pray, O oh God, that we will take seriously your word to our lives and wherever, wherever we find ourselves falling short of the glory of God through sin, that we will take action, urgent action against it. Immediately, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.